Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Finance. I am your host, Daniel Paris. New Books in Finance is a channel of the New Books Network. My guest today is William Quinn, lecturer in finance at Queen's University, Belfast. He and his uh, co-author, John Turner, are the authors behind Boom and Bust, A Global History of Financial Bubbles. It came out from Cambridge University Press uh, last year. Uh, Will, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Daniel. So uh, as a European, you're probably aghast at the American tendency for overstatement. So buckle up and prepare (laughs) for the following introduction of your book. So uh, dear listeners, you're going to want to make sure that you get and read this book because it is going to be remembered and characterized in the same breadth as Charles McKay's uh, famous 1852 account, Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, or the more modern Charles Kindleberger Mania's Panics and Crashes from 1978. For those of you who do follow the uh, history of uh, the financial markets, specifically booms and busts, uh, those are kind of the keystone works, though uh, people do take ex- uh, exception to, to McKay for various reasons. But I, I do believe that, that your account, Boom and Bust, is, uh, has a very good chance of being in that category, which is essentially to be read 20 years later, 40 years later, 60 years later, a, a century later. So I congratulate you and, and John Turner on taking on this topic and writing something that I, I think is pretty significant. So uh, well, well done there. The reason I think that it, it stand, will very likely stand the test of time is, in addition to telling the tales, all of which have great personalities and individuals associated with them uh, of, of how financial markets kind of get in a tizzy and then, and then collapse, you, you really bring a social science eye to it. And uh, do you want to kind of lead in with the typology of your bubbles, the, the, the triangle framework that you've created to analyze these historical episodes? Yes. Yeah, so... Um... We, myself and John, are financial economists uh, and financial historians. Uh, we really like to try to use history to develop models that can help us explain uh, the present and help us explain um, general questions as well as specific historical questions. Uh, and in this case, what, what we came up with was what we called the bubble triangle, which was a, a model, an informal model, really, that tries to explain the causes of financial bubbles. So the bubble triangle is based on the fire triangle from chemistry. You're, you're familiar with the fire triangle in chemistry? This is something you teach in the U.S.? Uh, I'm not, but it's been 35 years since I hit a chemistry class. But let's assume some of the listeners okay, sure. might be, optimistically so. Well, the, the fire triangle states that uh, in order for there to be a fire, you, you have... Uh, three necessary conditions, which are oxygen, heat, and fuel. Uh, And once those conditions are in place, a fire can be started by a spark, as long as there's enough enough oxygen, enough heat, and enough fuel. Uh, In the bubble triangle, we we, uh, steal that model and uh, apply uh, our... uh, um, our own analogs to each element. So the oxygen in the bubble triangle is marketability. So how easy is something to buy and sell? Uh, Very often, a financial bubble is preceded by some kind of technological innovation or financial deregulation that makes an asset much easier to buy and sell than it was before. Uh, For example, mortgage-backed securities. You take these very illiquid mortgages that banks uh, typically just hold on the balance sheets. 
and turn it into something that can be bought and sold a hundred times a day on a secondary market. Um, the second uh, element. But just for, 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 I think, U.S. listeners, and again, I think the term is the same, but I just want to make it, we often, at least within the industry, sort of might refer to that as liquidity. Liquidity, that is yeah. The, the, uh, yeah, assets that are liquid, stocks and bonds, and assets mm. that are not liquid, uh, you know, uh, perhaps less liquid, you know, real estate or private businesses. Yeah, we had a discussion over whether to use the word liquidity or not, and liquidity is a big part of what we call marketability, sorry, marketability. But it, it, maybe it also encompasses things like uh, legality. Um, so uh, how, uh, how legal is it to buy and sell the, these assets? This is something that's um, less of a concern for some bubbles, that they're in stocks and houses, and it's um, very, very, there are very few legal buyers. But if we go back to the 18th century, much of this stuff was illegal. Um, yeah, I think a lot of researchers would be surprised to learn that the, in many instances, in many places, the buying and selling of shares was illegal. The shares were registered in the name of a certain person, and uh, there was limited ability to buy and sell them. That that uh, will come as a revelation to many, many readers. Right, exactly. So the bubbles of 1720, which we argue are the first bubbles, and uh, the, the first major financial bubbles uh, in history that have been properly uh, documented, these were preceded by these reforms that allowed shares to be bought and sold for the first time. This transformation of uh, very illiquid forms of debt into very liquid forms of equity. Uh, so, as I say, very often with several of the bubbles we look at, uh, they're preceded by this very sudden and very rapid increase in how easy it is to buy and sell uh, the bubble asset. So the, the second element that which is um, analogous to fuel, uh, the fuel for the fire, is money and credit. So this can take the form of low interest rates. It can take the form of abundant savings. Sometimes there are abundant savings in an economy because the economy has been growing, because uh, for whatever reason, people are looking to save more than they're looking to spend. Uh, it could be because a lot of money has been repatriated. Maybe there were good foreign investments at one point, but those aren't as appealing as they used to be, so a lot of money comes back home. Um, or it could be because money is really easy to borrow, so that there could be um, credit, uh, the, the, the other form of fuel, and the much more dangerous form of fuel. So let's, again, for uh, U.S. readers, it's probably worth just mentioning. Again, 99% will know, but but maybe 1% won't, that you use in your book the term discount rate on government bonds. For the equity markets in the U.S., it's just the year, the rate on the U.S. 10-year is kind of the rate that's linked to equity valuations. And then you have the Fed influencing that rate. So when interest rates are low, that's that links to easy credit, easy money. It's easier. It's supposedly easier uh, to to borrow money. One thing I would I, I would push you on is that when in the various episodes that you reference, you have you know the discount rate in a particular country at a particular time was reduced by fifty basis points from you know two point five percent to two percent or something or came down from five percent to three percent over over uh, two years, whatever the case may be. I think for U.S. investors, they need to understand something, that interest rates in this country have been coming down for 40 years uh, since 1982, and from a very, very, very high level to an extraordinarily low level. And that secular trend really sets the stage for the notion of easy 
money and easy credit in our instance, it's been, you know, there aren't as many people who remember what it was like when interest rates, base rates, mortgages, and so forth were 15% plus. Uh, it's been a long time since that was the case in the States. I just w- want to mention that for our, our uh, listeners on this side of the pond. Yeah, very much so. I, I think the relative level of interest rates uh, compared to what investors have been conditioned to expect might be even more important than the absolute rate uh, of interest because a lot of the a lot of this is driven by the reach for yield. So uh, investors who, who are used to getting 5% are now only getting 3% on their uh, very safe assets and they're not happy with 3% and they go looking for something that's going to offer them a greater return. Whereas, you know, nowadays, if you can get 3% on a safe asset, that's fantastic. Uh, but it, it hasn't always been the case. So interest rates are the second element of the triangle. Easy money, credit, uh, the not only interest rates being low, but banks being open, lending, brokerages, providing credit, et cetera, is the second part of the triangle. And then the, the third part? So the third part, which is equivalent to heat, is speculation. This is investors using the investment strategy of buying an asset because they think its price is going to go up without any reference to its fundamentals, right? They, they stop looking at the uh, cash flows associated with a particular business or um, the, the activities that the business actually conduct or how much rental income a house is going to provide and just buy it because they think its price is going to go up. And when the price goes up, they'll be able to sell it to someone else and make a quick profit that way. So I, I share your definition of speculation. However, in the U.S. context, it's really uh, struggles because the the definition that you just provide, what I consider the textbook definition of speculation, applies to most of the U.S. stock market because it is without a uh, dividend. The leading uh, leading names in the U.S. stock market don't pay dividends. The yield's extremely low. Uh, companies just don't pay dividends. Uh, that's my day job is finding the ones that do. So the for, I think, a lot of listeners, modern listeners, who are comfortable, not with our definition, your definition and my definition of speculation, but with a different definition, they they are happy to see, even if they don't receive rent from the property, even if they don't receive a dividend from the stock, they're happy to see themselves not as speculators, but as investors. How do we, how do we draw that distinction? Again, in the 18th and 19th centuries and early 20th centuries, it was easy because either an investment uh, had a dividend and, and you could measure the utility investment that way or the rent stream. But in the age in which large, solid, substantial businesses don't pay dividends, how do we distinguish between investment and speculation? Yeah, it's not always a, a very precise, um, it's not always a very clean distinction between investment and speculation. This is something that many financial economists aren't comfortable with. Many wouldn't use the term speculation for that reason. Um, but I, I think it's not so much about investing in firms that don't pay a dividend. It's about looking at short-term prospects and momentum and uh, maybe upcoming news rather than the the aggregate future income that, that you expect to receive from holding the asset, whether that's in the form of dividends or share repurchases or capital gains that are indicative of um, expected very large profits, even if those profits are f- very theoretical and far into the future. Um, and 
you, you can see this quite clearly looking backwards, right? So that there are some very good studies by uh, Robert Schiller and his co-authors that ask people during what, what he suspects is a bubble, why they're investing in what they're investing in. And uh, if we take, for example, that the Japanese bubble of the 1980s, um, many uh, of the respondents at that time were recommending to their clients that they should buy stocks, even though they thought stocks were overvalued relative to fundamentals because they thought prices were going to rise. So that there are uh, times in history when we can say very clearly that investors at this time were engaging in speculation uh, to a much greater extent than they usually are. It's a challenge, though, when you're in the middle of one of those episodes, or if you think you're in the middle, as you point out in the book, it can be difficult to tell at the time that your methodology, I believe, correct me if I'm putting words in your mouth, is helpful after the facts are in, after the game is over, and you can measure and judge these things. You know, I could use the example of a, a, a very high-profile uh, electronic vehicle company that has a very large market cap these days, and there are people in it who are investing in it, and there are people in it who are speculating in it, and they're doing it simultaneously. So it, it's when you're inside of this measure, one of these measurement periods, not outside of it. It can, it, I, I think it's it's not as clear cut as it, it might be uh, looking backwards. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, one of the points that we make in the book is that predicting bubbles is much harder than people think. Uh, this is the whole crux of Eugene Fama's argument about bubbles, which he basically argues that bubbles don't exist, because in hindsight, it always looks very obvious, but at the time, it's not always obvious. Even if you can say that you're in a bubble, you can look at an electric vehicle company and say, well, okay, it's future activities are never going to justify this current car share price. It's, it's very unlikely that it's going to make enough money to, to um, make this company a good investment right now. Uh, even if you can say that, you have no idea when the bubble is actually going to burst. And in the case of this specific electric car company, people have been saying that, that it's in a bubble and it's going to burst for a very, very long time. And a lot of short sellers have lost a lot of money betting that that's going to happen. So it's, it's never easy. It's never easy, even if you can say you're in a bubble, it's never easy to make money from it. And, and you know, even if I push back on, in, in that, the, this typology that you've created is still very, very helpful in allowing people to make their own best judgment as to whether something is speculative in nature. You've kind of subdivisions of speculation or catalysts. Uh, there can be technological ones. There can be political ones. The political ones I thought, found particularly interesting, the Japanese example that you mentioned, that, you know, kind of subcategories of the triangle of, of forms of intervention that, that can serve as the, the spark or the catalyst for, for the speculation. I thought that was uh, notable. You want to describe how, you know, uh, examples of, of those different types of catalysts? Right, yes. Yeah. So here you have the necessary conditions for a fire, the necessary conditions for a bubble, but then you also need a spark, something that sets it off usually by providing a, an initial increase in the value of an asset that, that then starts attracting speculative investors. And we argue that, that typically this comes from one of two places. It comes from an exciting new technology with a very compelling narrative around it. Or it comes from, as you say, politics and a set of government policies or 
political events that causes the price of a particular asset to rise, sometimes deliberately, sometimes accidentally, and sometimes somewhere in between, where the, the government maybe didn't want the bubble, but, but they've uh, not worried too much, let's say, about whether there's going to be a bubble or not. Uh, so th- those are our two potential sparks that can really uh, start a bubble. Yeah, and in each case, it seems to be a, a little bit different. And again, that when we're looking at, the, uh, let's say, the current circumstance, then you can look at and say, wow, what uh, there are many political things going on in the world right now, it's, uh, most negative, some positive, I imagine, and lots of uh, very rapid technological developments. The, the trick is we can't tell uh, at the time which one might be the spark perspective. Is the work from home uh, trend a uh, which is a great technology is that uh, sufficient to, uh, to serve as, as the catalyst for a bubble electronic vehicles again we we, we won't know uh, we may be able to make reasoned uh, guesses uh, but we just won't know until uh, uh, until after the fact another another thing that I thought was very very useful in your typology of bubbles and I hadn't really thought about it is that you look at the aftermaths of the bubbles and say. You know, you judge them as to the damage they did to the the body, economic or politic, and, and in some cases it's severe, in other cases it's not. But what you really highlight is some of the bubbles leave very positive consequences in terms of technological changes, usually. That is, uh, changes in society resulting from a te- Even if the shares got wiped out, the technology stayed and society was better for that. Do you want to describe that a little bit? Yeah, so financial economists typically love efficiency that they really focus on uh, are the, the the question of whether the business activities that are being funded are the most profitable ones available. And they argue that if you have an inefficient market, this isn't the case. Um, and therefore, that's bad. Therefore, money is being wasted on uh, some kind of business ventures that uh, aren't making as much money as others could. But when you look at the bubbles that, the, that have actually happened and the assets that those bubbles occurred in, it's very often the most uh, innovative and R&D intensive industries uh, out there, like the, the internet in 2000, or electric vehicles today, uh, arguably, uh, or uh, the, um, the bicycle industry in the, the, the 19th century, which was, we'll get to that one. Well, that, that's a great little story. But uh, yeah, everyone, no, no harm, no foul. Stocks may have gone up and down, but bicycles were a, a net positive to society and they stayed. Right, exactly. And not only did they stay, but the companies that uh, were formed during the bubble and raised capital during the bubble uh, went on to heavily innovate as a way of surviving after it was over. So this bubble involves companies like uh, Dunlop, who went on to make um, tires for uh, motor cars. It involved companies like Roger Whitworth, who went on to make iconic motorcycles. Birmingham Small Arms, uh, they, they made bicycles before they made motorcycles. And again, these motorcycles became very iconic. So uh, there are also Rover, uh, Rover cars, uh, which were very popular in England until maybe 20 years ago. Um, they, these were all bicycle companies that raised a lot of money during the bicycle bubble and then were able to put that to, to greater use after it crashed. 
Yeah, and you could also, I think, point. I know, I think you draw a couple time distinctions, but railroads, you know, generally are clearly a net positive, and the internet a net positive. And at the other end of the ledger, the subprime bubble in the United States, it's hard to uh, uh, see anything positive coming out of uh, out of that. That was just uh, the opposite end of that spectrum of, of utility. Is is that a fair summary of your argument? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, whenever a bubble is in housing markets, this, these typically tend to be the most destructive ones because. They're very much fueled by credit. Banks tend to be, therefore, very heavily involved. So there's a good chance of getting a financial crisis after a land bubble bursts. Um, And they tend to be politically sparked as well. So you don't get any of these technological innovative benefits that you see whenever a bubble is sparked by a new technology. Okay, so let's let's shift now with all these pieces uh, in place. You set up this typology and you look at certain standards of uh, significance in terms of the share price movement and economic significance, and you, you end up coming up with a list of bubbles, some of which the average listener would know, and a number of which the average listener would be less familiar with. And it was, it was and the list was as interesting for the things that you didn't include as, as uh, and here's where you differ from Charles uh, McKay and maybe Kindleberger, for the things that you didn't include as much as the things that y- you did. You want to describe how you made those choices? And, and uh, you know, we talked about bicycles. Bicycles is one of the examples. And the, the Dutch uh, tulip mania is one of the examples that you explicitly excluded. For many reason, many uh, listeners, all of these bubbles are interesting. But from a social science perspective, you're drawing lines and saying this counts and this doesn't count. And uh, I, I think it's worth elaborating on, on uh, that process. Yeah, so, so we had two criteria for whether we were going to include uh, a bubble in the book. Um, the first was that it should have a substantial price reversal. Uh, so, um, And it needed to be a price reversal in a financial asset rather than in a commodity. So we, we didn't include bubbles in precious metals or um, baseball cards or, or anything like that because typically the economic relevance wasn't really there. They don't really affect many people outside of those directly affected. So if you don't uh, hold these assets or if you're not uh, working in the industry, you might not really notice um, the bubble taking place, or if you do, it's, it's almost like a curiosity, um, a, a funny story, or uh, maybe uh, an option for some of your friends to gamble in. Um, but the ones that cause real um, economic consequences tend to be in either financial assets or in houses, which are also financial assets. Um, so what did this means was that we are including the tulips, as you say. This was the most notable exclusion from the book. And the short reason for that is that the tulips were of incredibly limited economic significance. There was no financial crisis. There was no panic. There wasn't even a spike in the number of bankruptcies. And uh, Anne Goldgar has written a book about this, which is excellent, called uh, Tulip Mania, and she essentially argues that it's not even clear that anyone in the Netherlands at that time went bankrupt through as a result of the, the trade in tulips. So it's very much falls into the category of a curiosity, something that makes a good 
story uh, that might make a, a colorful intro whenever financial journalists are writing a piece about the, the latest suspected bubble, but that it isn't especially relevant if we want to think about how these bubbles shape and affect society. Guilty as charged, I have a Twitter post out there uh, with a lovely uh, price chart of tulips that someone hand-painted uh, from the time and in, in the shape of a tulip, uh, comparing it to the price of uh, said electronic vehicle company. Uh, I get your point about its lack of economic significance, but uh, at the level of uh, human personality and psychology, it, it certainly did capture uh, – it, it counts in that regard. But I understand it from a financial economic perspective, it, right, yeah. its significance it, was limited. It's a brilliant story, the, the tulip mania. Um, I, I mean, a lot of what people have heard about it isn't actually true, but it is a great story. And I, I think... Does it matter that it's true or not? I mean, you're asserting a standard of truth. My, you're a very serious social scientist if you're asserting a standard of truth. <laughs> right. I have to be very careful in what I say going forward here. So the, the bubbles that you do that you do reference, uh, you know, the, the, the I call them the Big Bang bubbles, um, and... and I've reviewed a couple of books on them and familiar with them. The South Sea Bubble and, and John Law and the Mississippi Bubble in France, they, they start the standard. They are the modern finance, the, the big bang of modern finance uh, in many ways. Uh, but going beyond them, I, I was less familiar with uh, Mexican mining stocks. Kind of makes sense now when I think about it, but, but tell us a little bit as kind of a preview of, of the first emerging market bubble from the perspective of, of, of London, as it were. Yes. So... After 1720, this is an interesting feature that we found. A lot of people, including the likes of Kindleberger, thought that bubbles were cyclical, that they happen once in a while, generally when people have forgotten about the, the previous bubble and are psychologically more susceptible to, to it. But what we found was that in some eras, bubbles were much more common than, than others. And... What this meant was that between 1720 and 1825, there weren't really any major financial bubbles, um, at least not that, it, that anyone has researched and documented. And I'd be surprised if there were any at all, because generally speaking, uh, trading in financial assets was illegal. All of these uh, joint stock companies that, that had formed in 1720 um, all but four of them were banned, uh, and those which weren't banned were typically either uh, one down in scale, in the case of the South Sea Company, or just became very infrequently traded. So It's worth, I think, noting that at, coming out of the South Sea bubble in England, legislation was passed called the Bubble Act, which basically precluded raising of capital for large-scale publicly traded corporations for about a century. So despite England dominating the world in the 18th century, in terms of the equity and stock market development, it was on pause. And I, I imagine that most investors wouldn't, wouldn't have been aware that England reacted to the bubble in such a way as to pause that type of capital raising for almost a century. Right, exactly. And the, the bubble act actually came in before the crash had happened. So already they were thinking all of this trading isn't a good idea. And France went even further. France had a much more destructive experience in 1720 and went as far as banning usury. So you, you couldn't really lend ed interest anymore. So their, their financial development was really set back as a result of 1720. Um, 
and to, to bring this back to the first emerging market bubble of 1825, this was when um, these laws were repealed. So that the, the Bubble Act, which was really a, a formalization of common law, which already made these joint stock companies illegal, uh, this act was repealed and the, the, the new companies were allowed to form and allowed to raise capital and, and allowed to trade their shares. And at the time, the thing that investors were very excited about was uh, the, the spread of liberalism to Latin America uh, and the, the consequences. Remember, li- again, for American inv- uh, listeners, liberalism means something uh, completely opposite of, <laughs> of what uh, its current uh, – liber- economic liberalism means uh, freeing up of restrictions, opening of capital markets, private property, uh, investment. That would be a, a thumbnail caricature of liberalism in the in the 19th century coming from London, uh, not, not what currently passes for liberalism in the United States. Just a footnote there. Right, yeah, it's uh, it's classical liberalism, I suppose you could say, and this was very much uh, the, the exciting idea of the time that investors were getting very uh, excited about that the the opening up of all of these markets was going to lead to enormous economic development, and these countries were going to perform very well. So there was a boom in the sovereign debt of these companies, and then. Uh, at the same time, there was a boom in the uh, companies that operated there. And this was where you get the, the, this uh, series of very colorful um, companies that um, launched uh, saying that they were going to um, maybe uh, exploit some previously unexplored areas of South America that um, were going to have these fantastic mines filled with silver. And again, uh, European investors would have remembered the Spanish silver mine from a couple centuries earlier right. and would have thought they found, you know, that the that uh, all the riches that flowed from the New World centuries earlier could be repeated in a, basically a new a new uh, a new Spanish silver mine. This would be in Mexico and and from UK corporations, but uh, the same concept I, I can imagine. Right, exactly. Yeah, um, and it wasn't just mines. So there there were um, there were these ventures set up to start transporting cows to South America and then milking them and selling butter to the locals and. These were typically quite disastrous because they, uh, you know, typical of Imperial Britain, had no respect for local knowledge and uh, didn't understand that the terrain was different, that the locals were different, that you can't just transport something from uh, London to the middle of Argentina and expect to uh, expect it to sell just as well. Um, so that there were many, many colorful companies that they were issued around that time. And at the same time, you get a stock market boom. And so boom and bust there, not, not, not all that surprising in retrospect, looked like a good opportunity at the time, but it, it didn't work out. Next one that you guys mentioned is one that's more familiar, at least to casual, casual investors familiar with the history of the financial markets, uh, the railroad stock boom. Uh, I think there's one in the US as well, but the specific boom and bust is in, in, UK, in UK stocks. 
in the 1840s. And then after they lose their shirts, they start investing in U.S. railroads uh, after the Civil War, and pretty much the same thing happens. But there was a very specific boom and bust. And one of the books, the things that your book does, which I shows, and I, I think is important for investors looking at uh, the markets currently, is that while we think of either the great financial crisis or the internet boom or the great crash in 1929 as taking out much of the market, uh, it is very clear that from your typology that there are sector-specific booms and busts, and that they don't take down the whole market. So for each of the booms and busts, uh, maybe with one or two exceptions, you show a chart that shows the sector that was affected and then the broader market. And the broader market goes up and down, but nowhere near as much as the affected sector. And that, I think, is helpful for investors today to realize that you know part of the markets may be overvalued and part of the markets may not be, and that you can have a partial bubble uh, in a sector and without the market itself being dramatically or, or the rest of the market being dramatically uh, affected. So you know, railway stocks in the UK had their moment in the 1840s, but the rest of the UK market you know, didn't, wasn't so dramatically affected. That, I, I just want to highlight that point because I, I found that very uh, helpful analytically and comforting in some ways that uh, with a few exceptions, a lot of these bu- bubbles don't affect the entire market. Yeah, very much so. Even if you break down the, the, the very famous broad stock market bubbles like in the US, you will still find sectors that are performing relatively okay or if they're not performing okay they're not experiencing this uh, boom in prices so railroad stocks during the 1920s in the u.s were fairly flat that they didn't experience this speculation that say um, telegram companies or uh, electrics or mass production firms did that they were very new technology intensive and um, although it's not uncommon for stocks generally to be involved in a bubble, particularly if they're interconnected with the part of the market that is experiencing a bubble. It's probably more common, as you say, that the bubble happens in specific asset classes and doesn't swallow up the, the, the whole economy. So let, let's skip ahead a little bit, just in the interest of time, to one of the more benign and enjoyable reads, parts of it, you know, which can be a, a, a difficult subject, but the bicycle bubble in the late uh, 19th century in the UK is an example of <laughs> a little bit of speculation, share prices up and down, a little bit of manipulation, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But at the end of the day, you know, society is better off and the stocks, you know, survive not too much collateral damage from uh, the bicycle bubble. But I, I think most readers won't be familiar with it. I guess so. The, the British bicycle mania. Really, this was a technological bubble that started as a result of the invention of the pneumatic tire. Um, the invention of the pneumatic tire and also the, the diamond frame, which is essentially the modern bicycle. The, the, um, it, it, the bicycles made during the 1890s look very similar to those that we're still using today, whereas those from the 1880s, a decade earlier, are those archaic machines with the giant front wheel and the very small rear wheel. So the the bicycle technology moved forward very quickly in a very short period of time. Existing bicycle companies experienced uh, far more demand than they could possibly meet. And a small number that were trading on the stock market already experienced a, a 
incredibly rapid run up in their share price. So their price was rising by 10 or 15 times in, in the space of a few days, which I, I suppose happens sometimes these days. But in the 1890s, this was incredibly rare. Markets were much less volatile than they are today. And the effect was to um, bring the bicycle share market to national attention, attract speculators, and suddenly every small bicycle firm was looking to raise enormous amounts of capital successfully and float on the stock market. And at the same time, of course, you get a rise in prices that isn't going to be sustained. And and for each of your bubbles, you do have a catalyst that that what leads to the the air coming out of the tire, forgive the pun, uh, or the the bubble being burst. And so, you know, again, the, the typology that you have tried to create is comprehensive in that you're dealing both with the what led to it, what caused it to end, and what the consequences were. I think the most uh, complicated one, uh, and in some ways, uh, well, uh, the, the subprime, I think, wins the the uh, most troubling one. But the most complicated one was probably the Japanese bubble, because it is an all-in, all-culture, everyone hands, uh, every man on deck phenomenon, and very complicated to have created that bubble. And you, you spent a lot of time on Japanese post-war history in order to set the stage for it and go back much further than you might have, say, for the the bicycle bubble. And it, it just is, it's a more complicated one than the others. At least that's how it, it struck me. Right. Yeah. So the, the Japanese bubble is almost the opposite of the bicycle bubble. And it eats up essentially every financial asset is involved. So it, sometimes the Japanese bubble is sometimes called a twin bubble because it happens in land and stocks at the same time. And what catalyzes this is uh, a wave of deregulation and um, the repatriation of money back into Japan uh, as a result of the expected rise in the price of the yen uh, following on from its uh, low fixed rate export-led growth policies of the 60s and early 70s, uh, coupled with a government that was trying to use a construction boom in order to uh, keep the Japanese economy growing at the spectacular rates that Japanese people had grown used to. And the the document that really sums up um, the, the causes of the bubble is the Plaza Accord, which was this agreement between uh, the Japanese, uh, the Americans, and several other countries, which was designed to uh, allow the yen to rise to a more natural value, particularly with... And this is 1985, and the plaza referenced is the Plaza Hotel in New York. Yes, exactly, yes. Uh, So uh, if you read the Plaza Accord, uh, having... um, read read the, the bubble triangle it just reads like a recipe book for a bubble it's uh, committing japan to um make ha- have a monetary policy which is as loose as possible to encourage the banks to lend more money in order to keep the economy growing while they shrink the state because this was uh, reaganomics at the time um, that there was a, a very strong feeling that shrinking the state 
uh, as an economic actor was a good thing in and of itself. And Japan uh, was buying into this and was trying to allow the private sector to grow by lending it a lot of money. Uh, you have the, the rise in value of the yen, which just encourages people to uh, invest their money in Japan because they can see and they can correctly predict that it's going to rise in value. Uh, and this results in enormous amounts of money in the economy looking for something to invest in. And it goes into housing and it goes into stocks. Uh, and having caused an initial rise in prices, there's then a, a vicious circle that the Japanese economy falls into because banks are lending based on the collateral of land and stocks. So the more the price of land and stocks rises, the more money they're lending, and that borrowed money is then used to buy more land and stocks, which in turn causes the price to rise even further. So the, the result in Japan is, I think, depending on how you think about the size of a bubble, Japan was quite possibly the largest in history. It was really spectacular. And the again, it's all society. Every, as you say, every element of society was involved to some extent or another. Uh, you, you do cover the subprime. You cover some, some uh, spikes and falls in, in Chinese equities and, of course, the dot-com bubble. But let's, you know, with this typology of yours reasonably worked out, let's bring it up to the present time. And, you know, you do have a a last chapter, which I I don't know when you would have written it, probably 2019 prior to COVID, because I I don't think there's reference to COVID by definition. So we've had another year or two and some very unusual, shall I say, market behavior in the last two years. And, And you do try to, you know, say... Predicting bubbles is hard, but here are some tools. So what is your, you stopped writing this two years ago. What is your take, if you care to be uh, recorded, on on what's going on in the capital markets right now? Uh, So I think what's happening in capital markets at the moment uh, is, to me, it doesn't look like a general bubble. Uh, So stocks look expensive and everyone can see that stocks look expensive but it's very difficult to find an alternative investment there is quite simply um, more money out there looking for something to invest in partly as a result of uh, government policy um, but also as a result of the pandemic people are looking to see if they're not looking to spend at the moment and Uh, As a result, and uh, also as a result of the Federal Reserve, you have low interest rates, a low discount rate, and very few investments are particularly appealing. So although I I don't know what's going to happen in stock or bond markets in the future, uh, if I did, I would be much richer than I am. Um, But Are are you not prepared to make a a Robert Schiller irrational exuberance conclusion in in a public forum? I I don't know what's going to happen next. Uh, I I, I don't think it's obvious that there's a crash on the horizon. I I know every asset looks expensive, but if there is a crash, it will likely be due to some unforeseeable event or some... um, Maybe if there's a crash, it'll be because our understanding of economics wasn't quite accurate or some theories about economics were correct and others weren't. And as of right now, as someone who 
has looked at so many bubbles in the past. I, I'm not prepared to say like this is obviously a bubble or anything. And if it's not obviously a bubble, in a sense, that means it's it's not a bubble. But that's just for the whole of the stock market. Uh, there are shares that, uh, let's say, uh, talk like a bubble and crack like a bubble. If you have that, <laughs> if, if you have that expression in the US, um, and electric vehicle companies are, are an obvious one. They're um, attracting investors who don't normally invest. Their prices rising uh, based on very little news, very little um, changes to their fundamentals. Their price to earnings ratios and the associated metrics are some of the highest that I've ever seen. Infinite in the case of those companies that don't have earnings. Right. So the, the, those companies may well constitute a chapter in the second edition of uh, Boom and Bust, uh, whether that's the case. Right, yeah, quite possibly, yeah. Um, so the book has come out. Uh, I was late out of the block. I was in touch. I'm, you know, your publisher regularly sends me books on these topics, but I fell behind a couple of months. And you, in terms of reading, arranging this conversation. In the meantime, this book has become very popular itself. But lots of podcasts, lots of uh, reviews in in the high economic press. That's all very, very good. Do we conclude anything about the current state of the capital markets? Because your book has become so popular, that's a leading question, obviously. But uh, you know, you're, there's there's a bit of a boom in your book, well deserved, well deserved, well deserved, <laughs> fully valued, <laughs> based on the intellectual content, the cash flows, as it were, the intellectual uh, intellectual flows in the book right. certainly justify the valuation. But there is a boom in your book, and I, I wonder whether that's uh, whether that's a tell, as we might say from a card game. Uh, a tell about the state of the markets uh, themselves. Have you, what is your after being on so many podcasts? This is number I think seventy eight, right? This is your seventy eighth podcast. <laughs> uh, I'm kidding. And the you know ninetieth review in in the high quality media, very positive. What's your reaction to that other than gen you know justifiable pride and, and sense of accomplishment? That's a, a really good question. Um, so, if we had wanted to create the, the perfect context for our book to come out and, and to sell and for people to engage with, it would be quite close to now because uh, there's so much high profile uh, stories relating to things that, uh, as I say, look a lot like a bubble or are related to a bubble in the case of you know short squeezes uh, and markets in general. Um, don't really look as sensible and efficient as they did maybe 15 years ago. Um, so I, I think that there's a heavy, yeah, the, the context has been very helpful to us for sure. Uh, I'm never sure how to interpret that. When you look back on previous eras when there, there was a crash and there was a, a financial bubble that's been confirmed by hindsight, were people were there a lot of people reading books about bubbles, or was there a, a more general idea that uh, bubbles aren't real and that bubbles don't exist? We don't need to worry about a bubble. So maybe the the number of people that that are thinking very deeply about whether we're in a bubble or not, uh, that you could say that's because we are in a bubble. But I think you could also argue that it's because we're not. 
Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, we, you know what? We'll know. Uh, this is a good social science experiment run in real time. Uh, five years from now, uh, we'll be able to say clearly or not for for uh, the second edition of of Boom and Bust. The author is William Quinn. His co-author John Turner. Boom and Bust: A Global History of Financial Bubbles. William, thank you so much for being a guest on the show and uh, really appreciate it and really look forward to how this story plays out in real time. Yeah, thanks again for having me, Daniel.